and welcome to this episode of Motherkind. It's me, your host, Zoe Blasky. This is the show that is going to give you confidence, clarity, and connection in this wild ride of motherhood. This week's guest is Lottie Jeffs. She is the co-author of The Queer Parent, Everything You Need to Know from Gay to Z. Such a good title. I learned so much from speaking to Lottie. This episode is going to leave you with a broader, more inclusive perspective on parenthood. And I think it's absolutely vital for every single one of us because we are raising the next generation. And acceptance and compassion starts very young. So here is the episode. I hope you love it. Oh, Lottie, I was just saying, I'm so excited to chat to you because I finished your brilliant book last night and I learned so much. Every single page, I was like, writing, writing, writing. So I'm so excited to share some of that wisdom and insight with our audience. Thanks so much. And thanks for reading it. Thanks for being like engaged with it. When we wrote our book, we really wanted it to engage people who aren't necessarily LGBT themselves. So to hear you say that really means a lot because that was really the purpose of the book. So I'm so glad it resonated for you like that. Yeah, it did. And as I was reading, I was thinking of loads of my queer friends that I want to give it to, that are thinking about starting families and have families and loads of just the whole community, the whole motherkind community, because I think, you know, parenthood in particular, motherhood, it is easy, particularly in social media, for it to seem so sort of heteronormative, white, middle class. And I think you just did an incredible job. It's such a service, that book. Oh my God, thank you so much. It's so nice to hear. I'm really curious. I think and talk a lot about matrescence, which is this process of becoming a mother. And I was fascinated how you talked about feeling like the other mother through that process with your wife. Can you tell us about what that was like, becoming a mother but not carrying the baby? Yeah, I guess for that whole physicality bit of it, the biological bit, your role as the partner or the one that isn't carrying the baby It is kind of limited in terms of what is happening for you. You're not undergoing the same physiological changes. Maybe emotionally, you're kind of gearing up for something big. You're maybe sort of taking stock. You're maybe thinking about your own childhood. You're readying yourself for it. But there is a difference. It's not the same as your body changing and your body taking you on this journey. You're sort of having to kickstart it yourself and be a bit more active in the becoming that is involved in becoming a parent. So I think for me, certainly it was only really after our daughter was born that my journey as a parent began. And I'm sure that's the same for a lot of dads as well. I don't think that matters. I don't feel the loss of that. I don't feel like because I didn't have that physical experience of carrying a child, I am somehow lacking something that makes me complete as a parent. I think it was very quickly, once our daughter was born, apparent that I would be as involved in the caregiving. I suppose I personally haven't ever sort of felt that that's problematic or challenging for me. Perhaps some other mothers have felt that and they have sort of struggled a little bit more with finding their role because they didn't kind of physically give birth. I think I was just okay with it. 
Well, in some ways, I felt kind of grateful <laughs> that I wasn't having to do it. You know, like it's it was almost like the most amazing gift that my wife could present me with, you know, like what an amazing thing. And I think I was, yeah, grateful is probably a good word. You know, lots of mothers in those early years talk about, and I, I experienced this, that shift in identity. You mentioned like thinking about your own childhood and thinking what's important to me now. Tell us about that shift. And in your relationship as well, you're really open about how you thought because you know, you're a same-sex couple, that actually a relationship wouldn't shift as much as it did? Yes. I think, firstly, a lot of what I thought would happen to me in becoming a parent didn't, which was a relief. I kind of worried that I'd be really hyper-neurotic and stressed all the time. I think I have previously been quite a anxious person I've experienced quite a lot of loss in my family that has made me just maybe a a little bit more aware of the fragility of life (laughs) than some people and I felt like I was going to really struggle with the vulnerability of having this like tiny baby to care for and that I would constantly be like oh my god are they breathing are they are they alive but funnily enough Our roles sort of switched. And even though in other aspects of life, Jenny has been a little bit more sort of logical brained and I've been a little bit more sort of driven by emotions, it totally switched when she gave birth and she was the hyper anxious one. And I'm sure she wouldn't mind me saying that, that she was really, really worried about the baby all the time to, you know, I don't know what a normal degree of worry is about a newborn but it felt like a lot and I found myself being the sort of calm practical logical one which was really interesting in terms of like our journey more as a couple I think it was a struggle because my wife works for herself and she felt an urgency to get back to work and she was kind of reckoning with her identity as a mother as a business owner and was sort of trying to keep it all going. And we've talked about this since and said, bloody hell, like in retrospect, we really should have given ourselves some time off. And she feels like she should have probably just given herself like some better time off because she was really trying to do it all. Like she was up until sort of midnight working on her website, writing articles, you know, just trying to kind of keep it going, keep it going. Then it was also a slightly exceptional time because like within two years it was COVID and I don't know, I feel like that had such a big impact. I don't know where we would be had it not been for that. Like that pushed us into like a really difficult place with having an almost two-year-old being at home and as it did for everyone, COVID sort of completely changed everyone. So I'm not sure like reflecting back on my motherhood path, like what was kind of COVID, what was just parenting, you know, there's so many shifts and changes and evolutions that happen. But I definitely have felt recently like I've come out of something. It's a weird feeling of like, suddenly sort of feeling like you're coming into the light again like my daughter's five now which is maybe like quite a long time to have felt like I wasn't in that space but I think we've found our flow is a lot to do with her being at school and like having childcare because we didn't really have any help when she was younger so like having her looked after by someone for 
however many hours a day is like life changing. And just sort of getting our life back, work picking up, seeing friends, traveling, like all of those things that defined us as people, we're sort of only now really reconnecting with those things. Yeah, it's fascinating because I had this amazing Australian doctor on who talks about postnatal depletion. And he said that that period of matrescence of that sort of confusion and loss, that can last between five to 10 years. Really? Oh my God. Well, we're we're lucky it only was five in that case. Yeah. That's so interesting. Mm. My daughter's seven and I had a little one in the pandemic actually. And I would say just now I feel the same, just starting to feel like me again. It's funny, isn't it? Because that's often the time that then you think, oh, maybe I'll have another child. And it's like, <laughs> back to back to square one. It's interesting because I say I feel like me again, but I don't at all. If I think about my pre-motherhood self, my gosh, in some ways, I barely recognize that person. I think motherhood changes you on so many levels. How has it changed you? It's so hard to tell because it's almost like what, self am I trying to get back to? Like the self that I was, you know, was that any more me than who I am now? Do I need to get back to that? Or have I actually just evolved into the person that I am now and who I really want to be and am comfortable with? I don't have a sense of needing to get back to anything. Maybe because I'm lucky that my life is you know, just with my work and I'm able to travel and I'm able to see friends and just the setup that we've got means that I do fill my life with things that make me feel like me. But in terms of being a parent, I guess it has been very grounding to have a sense that I have my own family to look after. And I think when you're from a family, a wider family that is challenging, like I absolutely adore my family, but my God, is there drama it's mainly health related. It's not people behaving badly. It's like bad stuff happening to good people and having to kind of figure a way through that and loss and illness and divorce and all of this stuff and anxiety and stress with a wider family. What I've actually found is that I'm a lot better at removing myself from that and being like, I have a real strong focus and that is my daughter and my wife and our little unit. And somehow being able to just think I can control and take care of my little unit and I don't have to be, I don't have to fix everyone else in my family in the same way that maybe I thought I did before I had kids, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's really resonating with me that actually we're going through something big in our family at the moment and I feel the same. I feel almost like I'm, watching it so I'm supporting as opposed to being in it because my priority is my girls and my life and and isn't it nice to come back to that you know like if you have to do like say you have to go to a hospital or be there for a really challenging time with a family member then to just be able to come home and be with your child I found that extremely uh, nourishing yeah same it's beautiful it's almost like I went from a daughter identifying more as a daughter in a family unit to actually becoming a woman yeah that's so interesting yeah 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 it's so interesting how that shifts and how your relationship with your own mother changes when you have a child and I mean yeah it brings up a lot it really does and when you're at home what is that because something that you know women like me in heterosexual relationships really struggle with is the division of the mental 
the emotional and the domestic load. Because typically you talk about in your book, you know, women pick up 60 to 70%, depending on which study you, you look at, of that work. And I'm wondering, how is it different? Because when I've spoken to the queer couples before, they've said it's been quite freeing not having those gender norms to fight against as you try and set up a family system that works. I totally agree. You know, I hear my straight friends and I see the narrative on social media about you know, emotional labor and male partners not necessarily carrying the same load. And I just feel so lucky to be out of it. Honestly, though, like, I think maybe quite controversially, I feel like, why are you doing it to yourselves? My friends will talk to me about stuff. And I'm like, well, why are you allowing that to happen? Like, why is that okay for him to just go away for the weekend on a rugby weekend and you're left with three kids and you're like how have you got to a place where nobody's saying hang on that's not like a good idea at the moment it's really bizarre to me that so many very rational smart powerful women somehow have this blind spot when it comes to emotional labor and they don't challenge it in the same way i get it i get where it comes from you know the history and the burden of tradition of heteronormative tradition in some ways but I also just feel like you have to break out of it and you can't just keep enabling it by working from the assumption that it's somehow your responsibility and anything that your male partner does to help is like a bonus but I don't want this to sound like I think it's women's fault the way society is set up does not make it easy for the division of labor to be equal. You know, if we had fairer parental leave, if we dismantled the patriarchy generally, like these things would be easier, but there's like so much to sift through before we can get to a point where we're working from a place of equality. But yeah, I'm certainly very grateful that gender has not entered into our parenting at all. It's almost like I can't imagine that. I mean, I can, but you know what I mean? It's so different having to, you know, for me, what happened is I was the one that took a year out of paid work and I didn't realize what was happening until a couple of years later, because I was then the one who was at home. I was doing all the washing. I'd never done all the washing. We were so equal before we had a baby. Everything was equal, what we earned, what we did. And suddenly I was the one cooking the meals, caring for the baby because I was at home. And it was only about a year later, I realized, oh my gosh, what has happened here? I've fallen into this pattern and we have to change it. And it was really bumpy. Going through that change was hard. I really had to advocate for myself, particularly as by that point, my husband was then earning a lot more than me. So that's another complexity. I've witnessed with people, you know, that's often used as the trade-off is like, well, I'm the one out earning the money for our family so our child can go to university or whatever but I don't think that's fair and I don't think you can use that as a kind of bargaining tool for me if I'd gone back to work and my wife Jenny had been at home which was the case for about six months I would be so hyper conscious of what I was doing when I got home I would be feeling so guilty and like I needed to overcompensate by like cooking the dinners organizing the stuff taking on other things I would just be so conscious of it and what I've witnessed in a lot of my straight couple friends is that the man is kind of honestly is like a bit lazy and just doesn't bother to think like 
what else could I be doing? And that must just be so frustrating. It must be so weird and frustrating to like be a couple, like a straight couple in a place of equality. And then as you say, like your relationship just completely change. I feel for you. I really do. <laughs> yeah. And I feel jealous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're welcome to join the LGBTQ community. It's never too late. Honestly, I was like, this sounds like a great idea. We were just talking about Glennon Doyle earlier. I might do a Glennon Doyle. You never know. Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. I think what you can do is learn from queer people's relationships and how they navigate these sort of emotional load questions and challenges and think, well, what can I almost queer about my own relationship? Like what is just here because it is always been this way and what can I actually challenge and unpick and reimagine? You know, I think that's like a really useful thing. That is such a good question. I love that question because I think when you take those, as you say, you know, gosh, millennia of conditioning, it's almost in our cells, I think, for me. I've really noticed it. You know, that's been handed down these generations of women that what it means to be a good mother, to really just take gender out of that. I think, what would I do? It's so freeing. It is. And, you know, I do really think that people would be happier and society would be better if everyone was just a bit more queer. And I use that in the sort of queer theory, like usage in terms of like, not necessarily relating to sexuality, but relating to like queering entire systems and ideas and just starting from a different place. Gosh, yeah, I'm completely with you. I'm completely with you. And something that, you know, a lot of our community experience in relationships, particularly in those early years, you know, the first five years of going from being partners and lovers and friends to parents is resentment resentful of one partner going out to work and one staying out. did you experience any of that as you two were shifting between who was more at work and who was more at home maybe at first because at first I had a job for a company for an advertising agency I managed to negotiate like two months off and then I went back, but then I was quite quickly made redundant. So <laughs> then I ended up being at home as well. But I think definitely for that first bit when I went back to work, I do think Jenny was sort of resenting it. And I can feel that had that continued, it would have caused resentment for sure. And, you know, then that becomes like not necessarily about gender, but just to do with like who has got the office job and who works for themselves. You know, it's like if she had had an office job, we could have split parental leave and whatever. But I think it would have caused the same sort of issues for sure. I think maybe I would have been a little bit more, as I said before, aware and conscious of my role in going out, like, did I need to stay for drinks with clients or should I just come home? Did I need to go to the gym in the morning or should I just do the morning so Jenny could sleep in? You know, being aware of those kind of things, I think I was possibly quite good at, but inevitably one person waving goodbye in their nice clothes, heading off for a day in the real world where the other one's there, like, you know, in a tracksuit covered in baby sick, just like, okay, see you later then. Like, no. I would have struggled it if it was the other way around, for sure. Yeah, I found that really hard. I remember when Guy first went back to work, I found it the longest day, and I think he came home at three, and it was still the really? longest day of my life. <laughs> <laughs> There's a brilliant chapter in the book about perfectionism and pressure, and it's something that I think about a lot because I am a complete recovering perfectionist. You know, through my 20s, I was 
unbelievably hard on myself. Nothing was good enough for me. You know, I had this raging critic and I really noticed it in motherhood. It got really loud. It was almost unbearable at points, you know, feeling like such a failure and I wasn't good enough. And so I had to really learn to change that. And so I was so fascinated by you talking about queer perfectionism, because I'll be honest, it's something I'd never thought about. Yeah. So Stu, my co-author, who sadly can't be here today, is really particularly good on this subject because I think he's naturally more of a perfectionist than me anyway. So in the book, we talk about how as queer parents, you feel an extra layer of judgment on you out and about in the world, especially I think as two dads. I do think it's specific to two dads or indeed single dads. So Stu gives an anecdote of doing his daughter's hair for school on her first day of school and, you know, really, really thinking that all the mums would be like judging and think, oh, dads can't do hair. And so he was looking at all these YouTube videos and like did an amazing job and sent her into school with like perfect hair. And then just as she was getting to the gate of the school, looked at her and realised that her school shirt was all stained and she'd got like scuffed shoes. And he was just mortified because there's this sense that, you know, straight parents are looking at you and thinking, oh, you know, they're not as good as capable. They're missing something by not having a mum. And a lot of that is in one's own head, I think, you know, that is, again, talking about the things we carry, like gay shame is a very real thing that from whenever you start sort of realising your sexuality as a gay person, you realise where that sits in relation to the quote unquote norm and you feel a sense of shame about it, even if your family are the most sort of welcoming as my were and sort of open-minded and accepting of it, there's still a sense that you are somehow causing a bit of a problem by being a bit different and not just being like everyone else. And, you know, the legacy of Section 28, not being able to talk about gay relationships in schools, you know, even the word gay, like it's something that, you know, you feel like you shouldn't say around children or it needs to whisper. There is all of this shame attached to queerness that even as adults and like fully realized, confident, successful human beings, that shame lives in you somehow and somewhere. And it does come out sometimes. And I think certainly for Stu, he talks about, you know, really feeling it when he's out and about with his kids. He's got three kids. At one point, all three kids are under five. Like, you know, those kids are going to be loud. They're going to be rambunctious. They're going to be having fun. And if you're there thinking, oh my God, they're not behaving themselves. Everybody's staring at me and thinking that I can't control my children because I'm a a gay dad and they're missing their mom. And like, you know, that's going to really add to your stress of parenting. I have felt it to a certain degree. I think less so do I feel sort of judged by society because I think as a mother or two mothers, like we pass quite easily in the world. I don't think anybody sort of, I honestly think probably people see us together and just think we're friends or something, or like one of us is the nanny, which we actually had in uh, in Italy when we were getting in a cab and the taxi driver said to my wife something along the lines of, oh, are you the nanny then? And uh, she was like, yeah, okay, <laughs> I'm just going to go with this. So I think perfectionism is something probably all parents experience. But when you add the level of gay shame and you add the level of like feeling like you're being scrutinized by society who are making a judgment on whether or not you have a right to be a parent, you know, that adds a whole extra level of stress for sure. 
I'm delighted to introduce this week's podcast sponsor, Barefoot Footwear Company, Vivo Barefoot. Did you know that 90% of kids are wearing shoes that are too small, which prevents their normal natural growth? And Vivo Barefoot shoes keep feet as barefoot as possible because that is the best way to ensure feet stay naturally strong and healthy. They actually increase foot strength and stability by up to 60%. I have known about them for years because my husband Guy is a big fan, but now I'm super excited because they've just launched their first ever walker for toddlers and preschoolers. The shoe is called Pluma, meaning feather, and it's lightweight, flexible, and so soft and snug that actually socks aren't needed. So it is the perfect transition from barefoot to footwear. Now, Vivo Barefoot are offering MotherKind podcast listeners a 10% discount. So use the code MotherKindVB on their website to take advantage of this fantastic offer. That is Vivo Barefoot website and use the code MotherKindVB. Back to the episode. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively and therapy is a space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Therapy is just an incredible, safe, non-judgmental space. I absolutely love it. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule, which I think as busy mums is what we all need. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash motherkind today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash motherkind. How can straight parents support that? Like, what could we do? That is a really nice question. I don't know that there is anything you can do beyond sort of changing the whole, like, (laughs) nature of our heteronormative society. Like, I don't feel like it's on you to change that. I think maybe just being, like, aware of it and not being afraid to sort of ask the question or say if, for example, there are two dads at the school gate and one of them is like worrying about the fact that their kid isn't making friends or whatever comes up to just sort of reassure them that this is like, oh my God, that's so normal. Like we do that too. And just sort of making them feel like their issues are ones that everybody shares and sort of bringing them into the fold, you know, like I think there is this amazing community of mothers and of motherhood. And I think sometimes as gay dads, they can feel a little bit excluded from that. And everything about parenting is geared towards motherhood. You know, everything is approved by mums. And, you know, to think as a mum, how that might make you feel if you are a dad to get the wet wipes through the post and it be like approved by mums and to just feel like, oh, okay, your whole like role and responsibility is constantly being negated and minimised by society so I think to sort of open things up and even kind of think about like your use of language for example like is there a whatsapp group that's called mum's group could it just be called parents group a tiny thing just changing the title of a whatsapp group this is not denying motherhood this is not taking anything from mothers it's just making it inclusive so the gay dads that are 
don't feel like they are the ones that have to ask for it to be changed for them to be included so being the one that makes the change without the queer person having to ask for it I think is a really great thing that allies can do for us for sure exactly it's those little things those microaggressions I don't know if it's an aggression but those little micro things definitely that you might not even think about yeah exactly they really add up yeah they do and if you're struggling as a gay dad maybe you've just adopted a newborn and like everywhere you go you're being like whacked in the face with motherhood and this being four mums and it makes you feel like this is not for me it's not for me at every turn and you're having to deal with all of the general stuff about having a newborn and all of the sleep is nice and the stress and everything else and then you're being told that you know you're somehow less than for being a dad and not a mum you know it adds up to making the experience quite draining and I think being a little bit more inclusive is no bad thing and I wanted to ask about open conversations both sort of with your children and with Stu's children and with children who might be in our children's classes at school and so I don't know if this is in the book have you had those conversations about how your little girl came to be and has Stu had the same yeah we both have we would say you know, have those conversations from pre-verbal, like make it normalized from the very beginning. So there's not a sort of big reveal moment where you're sitting down and you're having to sort of tell them something. I think my daughter has always known that she was conceived with a donor. We've used that word very freely around her. We don't want there to be any shame attached to the word. And likewise, stew with adoption, that's not a word that they feel like they need to whisper or be like, oh, they're adopted, you know, at the school gates. He's very out and proud. The kids will say they're adopted. They're happy. They're proud to be adopted. It's a good thing. So I think really normalizing the language around things from a young age is super important. Books are great. I've written a picture book called My Magic Family published by Puffin, which shows lots of different iterations of what a family is. It's like a really good way to start conversations. My daughter and I do a lot of role play. It's kind of like our dynamic, our parent-child dynamic anyway. I'm always having to like pretend to be different characters for her. Like just this morning, I was having to be the number three from Number Blocks in conversation with the number 12 from Number Blocks. And I had to get their voices just right. She made me go and like watch the episode to get their voices so I'm like doing this whole role play thing so role play and acting things out has been a big part of our relationship so we act out a lot of scenarios so sometimes I'll be another kid and I'll say to her you don't have dad that's weird and then she'll be like she's very good like she's very in it when we do a scene together (laughs) she'll be like actually I've got two mummies and some people have two mummies and some people have two and you know we'll play it out and I think that's a really good grounding for then if she does actually encounter those sort of points of view in her life or at school or whatever but definitely like talking openly when you play with kids as well like just being like oh look it's two mummies Uh, if you're playing with like Sylvanians or whatever just integrating those relationship dynamics into play is also a really good thing to do I think it is on all of us to do that it shouldn't just be the queer parents that's what I was about to say is a hundred percent on all of us to do that so that if you know at my school we're lucky you know we have quite a lot of diversity with queer parents and some surrogates and some adopted it's brilliant and I think I've done a good job actually of always making sure that with role play or if you know if 
my seven-year-old says, is that your boyfriend? I'll say, or girlfriend. Just so that it's just not a thing. It's just completely normalized now. And they will play with two mummies. Yeah, I love that. It's been so lovely to see. Well, my little three-year-old sort of broke my heart the other day because she did come home and say, I wish I had two daddies like my friend. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. I said, well, you've got a mummy and a daddy, but I get why, because they're amazing daddies. But I was like... Uh, and we've had a similar thing of like the kids in my daughter's class saying they want two mummies or even one wanted three mummies and like it's great that it's opened the conversation for those families and I'm very grateful that you know the fellow parents at my daughter's school are sort of open to having those conversations with their kids too and oh my god I think it's brilliant I'm so grateful that we've got those diverse families because without that I'd have to work a lot harder yeah you've got the examples there examples and the other thing it's good for is like you know now my daughter her normal is two women being married like that's normal for her so when she thinks about her future as they start doing it five she's always like well I'm going to marry my friend blah blah and her big thing is that she's going to carry the baby her friend I won't say her name and my daughter is going to be the one at home uh, and she's like planned it all out and then this is the gay shame thing again kicking in for me because I'm like oh god are these kids all now going back to their parents and saying I'm going to marry X when I'm older and you know she's going to have the baby and I'm going to be the and like are these other parents going to think oh god like Lottie's been pushing the gay agenda with the kids and like have I started something but hopefully everybody's understanding and I actually raised this I'm on this really great queer parenting whatsapp group and I raised it on the group recently of saying like fellow queer parents does your kid assume that they're going to marry the same gender when they're older and loads of people got back to me and were like my kid says they want to marry me my little girl wants to marry her brother I mean obviously we're talking very young children here actually it made me realize like they just say all sorts of nonsense don't they and they don't know what they're going to be they don't even know what marriage is exactly my three-year-old's desperate to marry her dad yeah it's hilarious yeah so that's how we can support what are some of the if you don't mind because I know it's sometimes not good to think about is it but what are some of the things that you found the most offensive or painful that you've been asked or experienced discrimination I think I've been really, really lucky. If I've got to be honest and say I've been really lucky, I haven't really ever been made to feel, certainly not by like parents at school or teachers at school. I feel like I've touch wood sort of escaped ever personally having been made to feel less than as a parent or kind of we're not understood. But I'm super aware that that may happen in the future. And as I was mentioning, this queer parenting WhatsApp group, which is like a good couple of hundred people on it, you know, the things that have been shared on that group really do take me aback. Little things from like schools sending kids that they know have got two mums home with a Father's Day card, that just nobody's made the connection. Nobody's sort of thought to change just feels so kind of it's lazy and like ignorant to think that oh that'll be fine just give them the father's day card they'll figure it out you know little things like that so I haven't personally experienced that I suppose I experienced a few things in the very early days of becoming a parent such as you know going to register the birth and 
it being like this big hoo-ha at the local registry office because the older woman who was doing the sort of filling in of the form had never come across two women before trying to register a birth. And although she was like very sweet, it was very like she was on the phone to head office. She was tapping away on her computer trying to find the like right drop down. She was like umming and ahhing about what she should put. She was like phoning Sandra in accounts to get the detail. Like it was a whole thing. And I certainly was sitting there thinking like, this is really annoying because surely I'm not the first person in the world to go to like whatever registry office and them have to encounter this and you know that feeling does frustrate me feeling like in institutions as well like in medical things or doctors that you're constantly having to explain yourself you just think have you not been trained in this by now like can somebody just do some training please with like hospitals schools doctor surgeries like to just at libraries you know like it's all coming out now at first I'm like no I've never experienced that and now I'm like oh actually <laughs> yeah I went to the library with my daughter and as she was taking a book out and the librarian was like oh are you taking that home to read with daddy you know little things like that I get it it's not coming from a malicious place but if you, somebody had had some training to think, you know, not all kids have dads and like maybe a better thing to say is it was just say something better. There's any number of things you could have said instead of that. I suppose they're the biggest frustrating things. Yeah. I think language really matters, doesn't it? It really matters because it's with our words that we can feel seen. And I think it's not just about, you know, as you're saying, there's, you know, that person may not have ever had a dad. You know, she may have two men that the dad might have passed. It's, there's just so many scenarios. We could never compute them all, but it's just the power of language and being conscious with our words, I think, is such a responsibility. Definitely. And even if you're queer, it doesn't mean you're automatically good at this stuff. Like, I'm still having to challenge myself. You know, like, if I see a kid in a park without their parents to stop myself from saying, oh, I wonder where his mummy is or that's what naturally comes to the front of my brain. And then to have to stop, think, say, parent instead of mummy, you know, I can understand and I experience as well myself, but I think it is important to just put that extra level of thought sometimes into how we talk about parenting with kids and with each other. I think you're right. And it's because there's two stages to it, isn't it? There's all the unlearning that we have to do because we have lived, as you said, you know, for millennia, we've lived in this and then it's the relearning. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm always so grateful when I meet people that are open to that, you know, like it's been so nice making friends with other parents at the school who I'm just so aware that maybe I am the first queer parent they've met, but they're so interested, they're open-minded, they ask questions, they're keen to be allies. I would say to people listening, like, it's okay to be actively sort of wanting to know more and, and curious and asking questions. I don't think you should be afraid of like saying the wrong thing. I think it's really nice for queer parents to feel seen and to feel like somebody's sort of taking an interest in how their experience might have been different to their own. So I would say like it's okay to ask questions. It's a good point because often there can be such a fear of saying the wrong thing that you end up just sort of saying nothing. Yeah, and pretending like, oh, you're just like everyone else. But I don't know, maybe not everyone is the same as me. Like I'm obviously like 
so used to talking about things and talking about my experience and my journey that it's just so natural for me. Maybe there are other queer parents that would prefer to fly under the radar and would prefer to just be seen as not to be kind of questioned on their experience in the same way, but you only know that by asking questions and and being bold enough to sort of try and go there. And then if they say, oh, we're not really that comfortable talking about it, absolutely fine. Like to not feel like you've been told off and you've crossed the line, like just to be like, okay, that's fine. I asked, that's what I learned and let's move on. Yeah, exactly. But I love what you're saying, which is just to have that open-mindedness, which I think is so important. And actually in our book, if you're interested, we do give some tips of sort of things not to say, you know, because especially when it comes to adoption and stuff, Stu, my co-author, is very good on talking about the things that, you know, however kind of curious and well-intentioned something is, like it isn't great, for example, to ask an adoptive parent what happened to the biological parent, like why the biological parent quote unquote gave up the child you know and these questions can sort of slightly just trip off the tongue when you're in a conversation and you're just like oh well why did was it drugs you know and like little things like that to just be aware like that's not the best thing to say to ask and likewise with like two dads or surrogacy you know whose sperm did you use is it yours or yours maybe don't ask that for example I love the book for many reasons but it's so practical as well. I read it and I thought, God, I'm really going to change some of the things that I've been saying for sure, because I learned so much that I just hadn't realized. Well, why would I? It's not my lived experience. So, right. Exactly. It's really, really powerful. And I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? A living nanny. Is that allowed? <laughs> In a sense, like, I mean, it's slightly facetious answer, but I do think help is so important. You know, I've seen like this meme on Instagram about like, oh, it takes a village to raise a child. And there's like all these people being like, I'm trying to find the village that's going to help me raise my child. And like, that really resonated for me. And we did feel quite on our own with early parenting. My mum's quite old and lives in Brighton. Jenny's parents live in France. We didn't really have any other family close by to help. We couldn't afford to have a nanny or childcare. I do think having help is just the most amazing thing. And I think as we were talking about at the beginning, like that's what's felt so transformative for me to feel like someone else can take care of my child. Wow how freeing is that and how amazing and I think that would be such a gift to parents and to mothers to feel like there was someone they could rely on there was somebody that stepped in and could help when you're feeling low when you can't do it when your partner's not around to just give you some help I think certainly thinking back reflecting on my own early motherhood having had more help would have just been like incredible I think all the time about privileges and privileges in motherhood, and there are many, but I think one that isn't spoken about enough is having like close, hands-on, trustworthy family is such a privilege. Oh, totally. I mean, it's just a game changer. I've got some friends who've got both sets of involved, reliable, young at heart grandparents, four other adults. And it's night and day. You can't help but be a bit jealous, actually. I Sometimes I see like, you know, the grandparents doing the school run and I, I do feel a little bit of sort of seething resentment <laughs> and jealousy. But yeah, you know, I think, yeah, having 
some form of help. And I don't mean, you know, help that means that the act of, of parenting is taken away from you and someone else is doing all the hard stuff. I literally just mean like somebody that would come and like do whatever it is you needed at that moment, whether it was like the washing up or making your dinner or whatever, like, wow, that would have just been incredible. Oh my gosh. Well, I've loved this conversation. Thank you so much. The book is in all bookshops, I assume. Well, it should be, but if it's not, you can always ask them to order it in for you. And it is online to order. It will be coming out in paperback, I think, early next year. So yeah, it's called The Queer Parent, Everything You Need to Know from Gay to Z. You can also get it on audiobook. If you like listening to podcasts, you might like listening to it on audiobooks. It's got a great intro from Sandy Toxvig reflecting on how things have changed since she had her children back in the 80s and the front page of the Daily Mail, like this whole thing. So she does a little talk for us at the beginning of the audiobook about that. And it's really lovely. So I'd recommend that. Oh my gosh, that sounds incredible. And you guys have got a podcast. We do. We've got a podcast called, well, our original podcast was called Some Families and our more current podcast is called From Gay to Z and you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. And you might also be interested in my picture book if you're thinking about ways of sort of talking to your kids, younger kids, certainly about different kinds of families. And that's called My Magic Family. It's published by Puffin. I'm definitely going to get that. It's a sweet book. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's been such a joy, honestly. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Zoe. There is something I have been waiting to tell you. I am really excited to share that Motherkind is the official podcast partner for The Baby Show with Lidl GB 2023. The show is from Friday the 20th to Sunday the 22nd of October at Olympia in London and I will be there on Saturday the 21st at 1.30 recording a live podcast with a very special guest talking about everything motherhood. I will reveal who it is next week so make sure you come back then. The Baby Show with Lidl GB is the UK's largest and best-loved pregnancy, baby and parenting event, and it has been running since 2002, so they know a thing or two about babies. Tickets can be bought online at thebabyshow.co.uk forward slash Olympia. That's thebabyshow.co.uk forward slash Olympia. And if you pop in the code MOTHERKIND, that's MOTHERKIND, before Thursday the 19th of October at midnight, you'll get your ticket for only £18 a person. That saves you £8 on the door. So please do get yourself a ticket. Come and see me. I would love to meet you and say hi. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. <laughs>